Welcome to Two Bees in a Podcast, brought to you by the Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory at the University of Florida's Institute of Food and Agricultural Sciences. It is our goal to advance the understanding of honeybees and beekeeping, grow the beekeeping community, and improve the health of honeybees everywhere. In this podcast, you'll hear research updates, beekeeping management practices discussed, and advice on beekeeping from our resident experts, beekeepers, scientists, and other program guests. Join us for today's program, and thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Two Bees in a Podcast. Today, we are joined by Chris Hyatt and George Hansen, both commercial beekeepers here in the United States. They will be talking about a new Honeybee Health Coalition document called Guide to Varroa Management for Commercial Beekeeping Operations. In our five-minute management segment, we'll be talking about controlling European fowl brood, and we'll finish today's podcast episode with our question and answer segment entitled Stump the Chump. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Two Bees and a Podcast. In this segment, we have a special treat for you. I have been a really big fan of the Honeybee Health Coalition, which is a group of folks in the United States who's come together to to do things on behalf of honeybees. I've really touted some of their Varroa management guides and best management practices for a very long time. And I'm excited that today we have two commercial beekeepers from the U.S., both of whom uh, work with the Honeybee Health Coalition, talking about a brand new document that that team has produced. The document is entitled Guide to Varroa Control for Commercial Beekeeping Operations. And so here with us to talk about that today, George Hansen, who's a commercial beekeeper based in Oregon, owner of Foothills Honey Company, LLC. He is representing the American Beekeeping Federation at the Honeybee Health Coalition, and he's going to talk about how Uh, This document originated, and he's joined by Chris Hyatt, who's a commercial beekeeper based in California, the owner of Hyatt Honey Company, and he's the vice president of the American Honey Producers Association. George and Chris, thank you so much for joining us on Two Bees in a Podcast. Happy to be here. Good to be with you again, Jamie. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited. We were contacted a few weeks ago from someone from the Honeybee Health Coalition talking about this new effort that you guys have put together. And I don't want to get ahead of myself. So what I want to do is just for our listeners, George, if I can start with you, you know, you're both members of the Honeybee Health Coalition. So for the sake of our listeners, could you tell us about the Honeybee Health Coalition? What is it? You know, what do they do? How did, how did you find yourself a member of it, et cetera, so that we can kind of set the stage for this document that you put together? Well, it's kind of a long story. Uh, I'll try and keep it short, but There were some meetings that took place, some symposium where a lot of people were visiting. They were stakeholders, not necessarily beekeepers, but there were also people from the uh, registrants and also from uh, different agricultural groups, as well as EPA and USDA. And they were without any particular purpose other than just to kind of look at what was happening. And out of that, the idea came that perhaps there could be a coalition of stakeholders, people, not just beekeepers, but the broader sweep of agriculture that might have an interest in or have an impact on beekeeping. And so out of a meeting, I don't know how many years ago, there was uh, some talk about, well, formulating this organization. And then we found that 
we needed somebody to help us uh, moderate it and to facilitate it. And so we went to the uh, Keystone Group out of Colorado, an organization that works with lots of different issues where there are people that have difficulty talking to each other, need to be brought together to find solutions. And so the Keystone Group helped us. We had a meeting up there in Colorado, up above Denver, in the mountains and um, in the lighter uh, air up there. And everybody uh, forgot their troubles. And we, we came together and decided what it would take to formulate it financially and structurally and so forth. And so since then, we've been meeting on a regular basis, have formed work groups. So there are people from, as I said, you know, there are people from the Apple Commission, there are people from the corn growers, there are people from EPA, there are people from the USDA, there are pesticide registrants, you know, Bayer and and, uh, others and Syngenta and whatnot, as well as beekeepers. So we are organized into work groups around the, uh, like five of them, I believe. And so that's the basic structure of the Honeybee Health Coalition. We have a couple of pretty good documents that are out there. And, and you mentioned one, the, uh, the Varroa Guide, which has uh, a lot of traction in the industry. So, so George, I would say they're not just pretty good documents. You know, I, I really am a huge fan of the Varroa Management Guide that the Honeybee Health Coalition put out first. I go around using it to educate folks about Varroa control. Since then, you've uh, if I'm not mistaken, developed a guide for treating and controlling American fowl brood, a best management practices guide, and, and quite a few other things. And it's really exciting what you guys have put together. And I love the fact that it's stakeholder driven. It's a lot of key uh, individuals and key groups and organizations that are trying to make a difference on behalf of bees and beekeeping. Yeah, I mean, just real quickly, some of the best management practices are after the Almond Board came out with their guide for best management practices, most of which had to do with a lot of it had to do with what to do when bees are present and so forth. Now the coalition has uh, BMPs for soy and corn, and they're working on one for apples and blueberries. And so it isn't just for beekeeping best management practices, it's for agricultural best management practices where bees are present or are impacted. Yeah, as Jamie mentioned, you know, every single class that we teach, we always bring up the Honeybee Health Coalition website. I mean, there's just so much content, so much education, you know, lots of different outreach opportunities. and, And we really appreciate all the work that the coalition has done and put together uh, for us to be able to share. And something, you know, the reason why we brought you both on today was to talk about this new guide that you just published. And so the Honeybee Health Coalition just published a guide to Varroa mite controls for commercial beekeeping operations, which is very, very exciting, right? So something for commercial beekeepers. Can you, George, can you tell us about this document and how it kind of came about? And then, you know, Chris, if you have anything to add on to that, that'd be great to hear about. Yes. Well, several years ago, when we started worrying a lot about Amitraz resistance to control Varroa, in a discussion at one of the work groups, we just realized that, you know, the Varroa guide talks about a lot of things, but there are very few actual practices in there that are applicable for commercial beekeepers. And in reality, commercial beekeepers have become extremely reliant on the use of Amitraz as its control for Varroa, and in particular, an unregistered form of it. And as resistance, and also the difficulty of politically managing that issue of the fact that we're using a material in an unregistered fashion, we're really vulnerable. And it seemed like we needed a plan B. And although years away from anything being registered for use, and so in the interim, the discussion went to this idea of, let's talk about what we have that is registered 
and how to use it on a commercial level. A lot of beekeepers don't use it, commercial beekeepers, because it's either too expensive or it isn't as efficacious or there are problems with it or this and that. So we wanted to try and find a way to put together ways of using registered materials in a, in a system where you use them um, one after the other or you rotate them or what, whatever it would take. And in order to teach that, we wanted to think about using actual case studies, finding beekeepers in the United States who are actually doing this to talk about what it is that works and, and how they came about it, what doesn't work, what are the costs, what are the upsides and what are the downsides. And that's what, you know, it took us two years to develop a document with these case studies, which is now what is being released. Yeah, I, it was a monumental task, just like George was saying. I mean, there was hour and a half Zoom meetings monthly for a long time, <laughs> but I would be remiss not to mention a few other people that really helped on it. Uh, Dewey Karen, you know, from Oregon State, Mary Reed, uh, Tom, Tammy Horn Potter, both are inspectors, Texas, Kentucky, Terry Hayes from Bee Culture, Tom Steger from EPA, Bob Sears from Eastern Missouri Beekeepers. I mean, that group, we just had went through the case studies and not argued, but we really went over it so we could have a good enough document that you felt like you were at a bee convention talking to a whole bunch of commercial beekeepers getting inside information. And I think that's what it is. And it's needed because changing, you know, the, the how the varroa mite has changed the virus loads and how, you know, what's acceptable or not anymore for monitoring and, you know, three mites per 300 or whatever. It's changed over the last 15, 20 years. It's really changed. And so this is kind of hopefully it'll be a living document, but just seeing those case studies that George mentioned, I think you can really, a lot of the maybe smaller beekeepers and some of these other commercial beekeepers that don't know how to rotate quite yet, you know, between uh, Amitraz and Oxalic and Formic and ApiGuard and all HopGuard, all these products, it'll, it's just kind of a one-shop stop that you can look at and say, hey, I, I can't remember, what's the upper temperature range for Formic? You know, is it 105 or what's ApiGuard? What's the temperature... You know, you don't have to go look at this one document. You just look at it. Same with Oxalic, same with all these other products. So I, we're just happy that I think this will help a lot of commercial beekeepers. It'll help them manage their varroa better. You know, I've, I have a lot to think about this because, like I said, the first guide was so good and it's so encouraging to me to hear all of these folks who you said were involved, Dewey, Mary, Jerry, you said Tom, Bob, Tammy, others, the two of you and others, I'm sure, within the auspices of the Honeybee Health Coalition. I think the really neat thing is that you guys are doing case studies because from experience, commercial beekeepers often will take advice from other commercial beekeepers, you know, faster than they would or quicker than they would perhaps from other folks. And I think the case studies that you guys developed and put into the this particular guide are really key to the success. So when I think about all these folks and within the umbrella of the Honeybee Health Coalition, you know, who was responsible for coordinating the logistics? How, you know, you said it started a couple of years ago, but, and there were, there were monthly meetings, but, but how did you, you know, develop this document along? You, you met monthly, you decided on what beekeepers to include, you know, what made the cut, what didn't make the cut. How, how did you coordinate all of this to produce the document that you ultimately uh, released? Yeah, Matthew Mullica, the, probably the person who contacted you, is the Keystone representative who is uh, doing this particular project, along with a lot of the rest of the uh, coordination for the coalition. And then Matthew, we had a consultant, uh, Eric Von Schrader. He kept us 
the lines and that was kind of his specialty he edited and and kept us on task and you really need this or you're being redundant saying this over and over again and so between Matthew and Eric that really kept us on kept it on the rails moving along you know uh, we learned a lot um actually initially I was thinking there have to be a half a dozen people out there that don't use Amitraz and are being successful and are just using registered materials or whatever. It was really, really difficult. Find the case studies with people who on the one hand were actually doing what we're talking about, rotating and using you know, resistant stock or whatever. And at the same time, were willing to tell us about it and have their name and, and pictures in, involved and stuff. And so it turned out that, you know, the, it was it was pretty interesting to try and find people and none of us are are pure and that's the whole thing that I think comes out of all of this is that we're all struggling with this uh, task and we're each one of those case studies they're in different parts of the country and doing different things but each of us are approaching it a little bit differently and haven't I don't think any of us have put all of our eggs in one basket uh, that I think is the message is that we're finding ways of using lots of materials and uh, strategies that are making a difference, but boy, it is not a silver bullet. That's for sure. So I am really, so today we're recording this on June 21st, and I know that the Honeybee Health Coalition actually just released it. I have not had an opportunity to look through the document, and I am excited to see, you know, the different case studies and really the information and the content that you've put in there. Um, Is there, you know, what are some of the key things that you found that our listeners will look forward to when they open this document to take a look at it? Well, I think just you'll see from the case studies, there's a rotation for Varroa mite guide from, you know, spring, what you're using in spring and the fall. Um, you'll definitely see a pattern. And then I really do like the pros and cons we listed of, is this product too expensive? Is there a problem with heat when if it's too hot? Register material, et cetera. And I like the lessons learned. I mean, you're getting lessons learned from these commercial beekeepers you know, what works, you know, you can use this while honey supers are on, you can use this, you know, et cetera. But I think those lessons learned are very valuable. And with them, I think, you know, you're getting a real close look at operations in different regions of the countries. And you can also see what they're doing. Besides that, they're also using a lot of hygienic queens the, from different places, mite biters, the Hilo project, those are all in a lot of those case studies, you'll see that. So it's a, it's a whole mix of what people are doing, trying to control rural mite. That's pretty cool. I'm excited to, um, I'm excited to read it. How, how many years of experience do you think has come together to make this document? Well, I, I don't know. I'm coming up on 50 years. I don't know, but no, I mean, you, you, that list of people that you just, that uh, Chris just rattled off. I mean, those are some of the most ex- experienced, um, they've been around, you know, they've seen all of this and, um, and have seen the changes. And, and then you also have, you also have some early adopters. I mean, there's a bunch of this stuff we're talking about is, is like brand new. I mean, certainly, well, I don't know, I guess winter overwintering indoors is not a particularly brand, brand new idea, but it's certainly one that's getting traction now. And uh, there hasn't really been a very good discussion of it up until just very recently. And there are some people that jump on that kind of stuff and other people wait around for everyone else to figure it out first before they put their money in the game. Same way with the, with the uh, resistant stocks, it's expensive. And there are a lot of, uh, a lot of lessons to be learned there. I'll tell you, 
So it's it's not just a matter of putting together old experience. It's also it's also lessons learned from early adopters, new things that just we don't have very much experience with yet. And so there's some pretty good discussions there about about all of that. So when I think about this document that you written, I mean, it's got commercial beekeeper in the title. That's that's your main target. You're hoping to change the commercial beekeepers approach to varroa control. Can sideliners pick this up and gain some insight? Can hobbyist beekeepers as well? Folks even outside the U.S. maybe? Oh, 100 percent they can. Yeah, there's I mean, it just shows different regions of the country what different beekeepers are doing. I mean, we have the Card family, Andy Card, Massachusetts. I know he runs Louisiana. They run a lot of hives, I think 30 to 40,000. I mean, the Millers, multi-generational. I mean, I think it's seven generations of farming and uh, beekeeping in North Dakota, California. Uh, I'm just second generation. I mean, the Hycombs from longtime queen breeders. I mean, so you've got some valuable groups, beekeepers from different regions of the country. So I, I think that's valuable for anybody, even international folks. We're showing you what's worked in the past and what hasn't in this case study. You know, the thing that we really haven't talked about, but in the preamble in the beginning, the reason for the document is actually written in the first pages about the issue of using one material solely. Um, in this particular case, we're talking about amitraz and the trouble you can get into. And we are flirting with issues of resistance now and it's very clear that beekeepers are increasing the uh, frequency of their treatments as well as the dosages. And you know you can only do that for so long before you're courting disaster. So anybody, no matter how many hives they have, that uh, is is probably going to be affected by the loss of amitraz or the or the partial loss of amitraz. So it's it's important information for everyone. But the problem with the Varroa guide is that the, most of the things that are in there that are, they're, they're really not applicable at a commercial level, at large numbers of hives that have to be handled. And so that isn't to say that some of the things that commercial beekeepers do can't be applied on small scale, but it is the opposite's not true. Uh, things that can be applied on a small scale, almost for sure, can't be applied on a commercial level. So that's a nuance in your question, to your question. All right, so I've got the big overarching finale question. And that is, are you optimistic that we will beat Varroa? Oh, I think so. I mean, there are so many things, you know, with technology and things that are coming out. I mean, I think the big part, if the viruses, you can keep your beehives alive with the viruses after they're passed with Varroa. But I mean, the Honeybee Health Coalition has an orphan compound working group where they're at old miticides that were thrown on the shelf and now they're trying to bring them back maybe and apply them in a different way. That's exciting. I know there's, and like Cornell University has some lasers and then there's, and there's just a lot of different things. I know there's some probiotic work and in a different way. I mean, everyone's excited about Randy Oliver's, you know, glycerin with the oxalic and the towels. And so there, I mean, we're throwing everything in the kitchen sink at these things, but I think there's room to have optimism for the future with technology, RNAi, if it ever be feasible to do it, not be too expensive. I think there's reason to be optimistic. And the one thing you didn't mention um, is that it, the breeding for resistant stock is really making progress. And in my own outfit where I'm using the Hilo stock, um, we're seeing significant improvements, although it's, 
we're not to the end of the road there, but um, there are several there are several breeding projects out there that have clearly shown that with breeding you can reduce the dependence on chemical controls on the commercial level. So I'm really really um, convinced that if we stay with it and uh, where it's where it's applicable, we we can have bees take care of themselves as far as mites are concerned with resistant stock. So guys, the Honeybee Health Coalition has a really great website. As you both know, we're going to make sure and link the website as well as the direct link to this document in our show notes. We'll also include the direct link to the, the older Varroa Management Guide, just so all of you listeners out there can have a look at both documents. Uh, I consider the original Varroa Management Guide to be in my opinion, the best varroa management guide on planet earth. And I know with this new document that you guys have out with case studies for commercial beekeepers and these newer strategies and rotations of chemicals and other hints, et cetera, just to be a great um, companion document to that document. I really think that the Honeybee Health Coalition has done a great job in that regard. And we'll make sure and link to everything in the show notes, but I'm curious, Chris, George, is there anything else that you want to show, uh, share about this effort? Any other um, outlook on the future that you want our listeners to know as we kind of wind down? Well, I'm glad George mentioned, I was just thinking mitocyte control. I totally forgot about the breeding aspect. I think, yeah, that's more long-term, but that is definitely, you would think in the future, wouldn't that be great to get back to where we used to be and not putting a pesticide into the hive? I mean, that would be great to sh shoot for. But one thing I'm excited about, it, it's fairly new, is that, you know, we've been working trying to get a good honey price for the American beekeepers to stay in business. And we're excited that we have the preliminary win, I guess you could say in an anti-dumping suit against Vietnam and India and some other countries. And that, you know, is in the very preliminary stages, but that affirmative, the International Trade Commission voted in our favor. We hope that can really help commercial beekeepers, you know, Instead of, you know, I know pollination can be hard on your bees going from crop to crop to crop and sprays and stuff. And it, really a good honey flow can help cure a lot of problems. And you get paid a fair price for fair price for it. That'll really help almond pollination and it all across apple, blueberry pollination. It really will help, I think, all beekeepers. We're excited about that. With all of our problems, we there's a lot of good stuff going on. Stuff that Pam is doing and the bee and butterfly. Habitat Fund and, and several other efforts around uh, just around forage in general. There's a lot of interesting things going on. Some of them the coalition will be involved with and other ones are different organizations. Uh, so, but it's, it's a kind of a scary time, but it's, you know, the, and economically this is, uh, this is really challenging, but you know, I, I want to be optimistic about moving forward on, on these issues. Well, George and Chris, I really appreciate you both so much joining us to talk about this very important output of the Honeybee Health Coalition. I think it's going to be of great value to beekeepers everywhere. Awesome. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Absolutely. Everybody, that was George Hanson, who's a commercial beekeeper based in Oregon, owner of Foothills Honey Company, LLC, representing the American Beekeeping Federation at the Honeybee Health Coalition, and Chris Hyatt, who's a commercial beekeeper based in California, owner of Hyatt Honey Company, and uh, vice president of the American Honey Producers Association. They were joining us talking about the Honeybee Health Coalition's new guide to varroa control for commercial beekeeping, which you can find linked in our show notes. Thank you so much for joining us on this segment of Two Bees in a Podcast.
You're listening to Two Bees in a Pod, brought to you by the University of Florida's Institute for Food and Agricultural Sciences, Honeybee Research and Extension Lab. So last week in our five-minute management, five-minute management, we spoke on American foul brood. And this week's five-minute management, we are going to be talking about European foul brood. And so Jamie, I'm going to go ahead and start the timer. We're at five minutes. So tell us how to manage European foul brood. Amy, one of the key ways to manage European foul brood is to remember, first of all, it's not American foul brood. So American foul brood, if you recall, can form spores. And so even when you treat the colonies, the spores can remain behind. So you have to take drastic actions to deal with it. European foul brood, on the other hand, is caused by a bacterium that does not form spores. And so when you treat to control it, it actually goes away. So there's really two strategies Uh, broad strategies, as it were, to address European foul brood. The first of those is prevention. The second of those is sort of how do you treat it once you have it. So in the prevention category, the first thing that you can think of is sanitation, right? Just be a clean beekeeper. If you find it in one colony, sterilize your hive tool and your glove and your smoker before you move to another colony. The second way of preventing it is start with new equipment, new hives, new packages, new colonies, new frames, new smoker, new hive tool. So hopefully you don't bring it into your apiary in the first place. Third, you can use hygienic stocks of bees. European foul brood affects usually the uncapped stages of bees. It can affect uh, older bees as well, but it's usually the uncapped stages. So just simply having hygienic bees, queens that have who who have been bred to have hygienic traits can potentially help reduce the impact of European foul brood because the worker bees are always removing the young larvae that are sick with the disease. And you can also treat prophylactically. So in advance of the problem with antibiotics, I will stress that I am not a huge fan of that. Furthermore, uh, the labels on the antibiotics or a lot of the available antibiotics don't permit that. So I would say rather than using antibiotics for prevention, you might only consider using antibiotics for treatment. So as we move into this treatment category, what do I mean by that? Well, if your colony, if a colony is found to have European foul brood, then you might consider treating it with an antibiotic since it does not produce spores. When you treat the colony, the disease will go away. Keep in mind in the U.S., if you're listening to us, you have to have a VFD or a prescription before you're able to even purchase antibiotics for use in bee colonies in the first place. There's some non-chemical methods as well. You can add bees and brood to the colony that has European foul brood to beef up the population so that the bees can take care of it themselves. You can consider requeening that colony because clearly the stock that you have is susceptible to the disease. So perhaps putting a new queen in there will uh, increase, it will introduce a stock that's not susceptible to it. A lot of beekeepers like to feed their colonies with European foul brood one-to-one sugar water. It's, it's very common to try to fix EFB just by feeding bees. You know, the idea is that usually bees, when they've got enough food, when they're growing and nectar's coming in, they can take care of the disease themselves. So feeding one-to-one sugar water can uh, simulate that. And then a final method is what we call a shook swarm method where you shake all of the bees off all the combs and out all of the boxes 
from a colony that has European foul brood into new equipment, treat them with an antibiotic, and then you can sterilize the equipment that had it or store the equipment or do away with the equipment altogether. Our team has put together a really good document on controlling European foul brood and honeybee colonies, and we'll make sure and link that in our show notes so that you'll know how to find it and, and that additional information associated with it. Wow. I think this was one of the first ones that you've done in a while where you had at least a minute left. Whoa. So I have, <laughs> yeah. Well, so I have another question for you. Just Maybe to, uh, I should have spoken <laughs> slower. No. <laughs> um, okay. Wow. That was an unusually uh, impactful think, laugh there. Yeah. <laughs> that Late was day. pretty good. <laughs> so, um, okay. So just about American Falbert and European Falbert, is it so? I read that it was, they're called American Falbert and European Falbert because of the person who had found it, or the people who had found it versus where they actually originated from. Yeah, Is that the, true? Yeah, the names have nothing to do with where they actually are native. It has everything to do with where the people were um, when, when they found it. And I always tell people, and I know we have an international audience, so this joke might be last on, lost on folks, but I always tell people, you know, as a sense of national pride, American foul brood is the nastier of the ones, <laughs> but, but in all oh seriousness, but um, um, in all seriousness, it's, it's problematic principally because it's spore forming. And once you have it, it's incredibly difficult to get rid of it. Whereas European foul brood, there's some management techniques you can use to get rid of it. And frankly, Amy, a lot of times bees will just pull out of it on their own when there's enough incoming nectar or the colonies are, are strong anyway. So great to know. All right. Well, that was our five minute management. Stay tuned for the upcoming five minute management that are also management of honeybee pests. It's everybody's favorite game show, Stomp the Chomp. All right. We've been getting a lot of questions. So thank you to our listeners. I think our listenership has increased in the past couple of months. So I'm really happy to see that there have been questions coming into our email. Um, Jamie, I've got three questions for you and we'll, we'll get started. We'll see what Let's I can do. Let's do this thing. Yeah. All right. Okay. So the first question, um, there's a little bit of background. This person, it's their first year of keeping bees. They love it. Of course. When you keep bees, you love it most of the time. And then you can't stop reading and learning about them. So of course, this person is obsessed with bees. They're in the suburb of Philadelphia. They keep hearing about a dearth period that they're going into. And so the question is essentially asking about feeding bees sugar water. So the problem really is this person doesn't know when they're supposed to determine whether to feed or not to feed. Their colony has two deep eight frame brood boxes, a deep eight frame honey super and a medium eight frame super that they're drawing out comb on. So really the question is, when do we know to feed? When, when do we know and, and how do we know? And Amy, this is a really important question because when you survey beekeepers about some of the significant stressors that honeybees are facing, feeding is always in the top five. Well, starvation's in the top five. And so you remedy starvation by feeding bees. So understanding when to feed bees is incredibly important. And I get this type of question so much because of the background the beekeeper shared think about what they shared you know my mentor is telling me i need to watch out i need to be feeding bees because we're going into a dearth 
I hear that all the time. So sometimes when you tell new beekeepers that what you'll see is that these new beekeepers will just start feeding and never stop, or they're not sure when to stop, or they're not sure if they should still be feeding and they're not sure what they should be feeding. So here's my short answer to it. And then I'll explain a little bit beyond that. My short answer is, is I only feed bees when they need to be fed. I don't feed them because it's a known dearth period mm -hmm. or because it's, um, you know, something like that. And so let me, let me expand on that idea. My standard um, hive configuration is a deep box for brood and a medium super for honey. That's the standard hive configuration that I take through the year. And so a queen will produce about a deep box worth of brood and bees will need about a medium supers worth of honey to survive throughout the year. The particular questioner uses two eight frame deeps, but in reality, that's about the same. They're using about a deep for brood and, you know, just over a medium or so for honey. And Hive configuration is important because if you are running singles, then you may not have enough room for all the honey that they need to survive throughout the year. And so for me, it's pretty simple. I like to say colonies need about a medium supers worth of honey in reserve at any given time. So if I see that in my colony, then I don't feed. There's no need to feed hmm. yeah. if you're in a dearth, if they've got sufficient stores. Sure. Now, there is some caveats to that. Caveat number one is maybe you want your colony to grow during the dearth because you want to split it, or maybe the dearth is before the major nectar flow and you want them to grow and be strong enough to produce honey. So, so in order to answer this question appropriately, number one, you need to ask, do they have enough food reserves already? Number two, what am I trying to accomplish with these bees? The questioner mentioned we're going into August and there's noted dearth. Well, are you trying to split colonies in August? Are you wanting to grow them because there's a coming nectar flow in September? You know, if the answer to both of those questions is no, then you would only feed if they're, if they're zeroing out in honey reserves. And in this particular questioner's case, they have an eight frame deep box and an eight frame deep box with the eight frame deep box that's on top being where the bees are going to store the honey. So I'd want to see that box about two thirds full of honey, you know, throughout the year. And so in my particular case, I want that medium super full. If I'm going into a dearth in August and I see that I've got about a quarter of that medium supers worth of honey filled with honey. So, so I know then that they're going into a dearth. They're going to exhaust what little bit of honey stores that they have left. And so I'll feed them to fill up that medium super. But if that medium super is already full, you know, there's no need to feed them. I don't want them to grow. I'm not going to split them. So I don't feed them. Another good indicator, you know, besides just having that upper super or box dedicated to honey is hoisting the hive. If you go behind the hive, a lot of hives have these handles that are kind of um, manufactured into the walls of the box. So if you go behind the hive and hoist the bottom box from its back handle, kind of rocking it forward with one hand, you know, you're kind of tilting the colony forward with one hand, you can get a rough index of the weight of that colony. And over time, you'll be able to say, oh gosh, this is super heavy. I, they've got enough honey or no, it was incredibly easy for me to hoist this thing. Maybe there's a problem. And you can train yourself to recognize that weight because in my case, when I have that medium super full of honey on my standard hive configuration, I can practice hoisting that to know what it feels like to have that honey in a hive. And just 
kind of one final statement here regarding this is that they won't necessarily always store that honey in the box you designate as their honey. So, so in, in the questioner's case, you know, if you've got two eight frame deeps, I would want to see about a medium supers worth of honey distributed throughout those two boxes. So that will be somewhere around, you know, half of the upper deep with honey and maybe honey stores a little bit around the brood in the lowermost box. So it's an art. Feeding bees is an art as much as it is a science, but you'll, you'll begin to learn to recognize these things. If you keep in mind, my bees need about a medium supers worth of honey in their hive throughout the year. And if I get below a half, half of that, then I may need to feed if there's an upcoming dearth. Yeah. So that actually goes kind of, it's related to the next question that we have. So the question, the second question that we have for the Q and a, so when people do feed their bees sugar syrup and the bees kind of turn that into honey, is that actually honey? And, you know, would you collect it? Is it considered honey? And I guess in my case, why would you not just eat the, drink the sugar water? <laughs> <laughs> Drinking the Kool-Aid, right? So exactly. Um, this, this is an interesting question because when I was learning how to keep bees, my mentor always told me, do not feed bees uh, sugar syrup during a nectar flow. And he's like, the, the, the principal reason for that is because they might store that sugar syrup in the supers that you want them to make marketable or harvestable honey. The short answer is, is that sugar syrup stored in cells is not honey. Honey has a very specific definition, and I don't have the exact specific definition memorized, but it goes something like this. Honey is the product of nectar that bees collect from plants. And they don't even say flowers because sometimes you can, uh, bees can collect uh, nectar from extra floral nectaries, nectaries that occur outside of flowers. So bees so honey is, is the conversion of that nectar collected from plants into a sugar-rich substance. And in the case of sugar water, that's not what the bees are collecting. They're, that You are giving them you know, granulated sugar dissolved in water, that sugar syrup. And when they dry it off as they would nectar, and when they go through the conversion to honey process, it cannot be honey because it wasn't collected as nectar from mm -hmm. plants. Mm -hmm. And as a result, there are some states and some regulations that say honey cannot be adulterated. If it says honey, it has to be, you know, that particular thing converted from nectar that bees collect from flowers. And as a result, that honey cannot contain sugar water. Now, now we get into the philosophical issue then is, is it okay for bees? And so then it, that all goes back to, well, why do bees have honey in the first place? A lot of people just assume that honey is bee food and they get a lot of nutrients from it. But really most of what bees get from honey is energy. It is their fuel. They eat that sugar so that they can move. And when they consume sugar delivered to them as sugar syrup, they seem to move just fine and function normally. I know this is, you know, this might be setting us up for a little bit of trouble with our listeners, but, but all the research that I've shown is that bees um, do just as well on sugar syrup as they would on honey stores, because again, it's not their food. It's just energy that they're trying to derive from it. So we feed bees for the purpose of replacing honey that may not be there and bees use it for sugar syrup for, for energy purposes. Yes, you can technically harvest it. You can technically eat it, but it's not honey. And more often than not, it's counted against you if it shows up in the honey that you extract. Now I'll throw in one last little bit of comment here just just to save us a little bit Amy and that 
honeybees are remarkable organisms and they're finding every day all kinds of benefits bees get from certain compounds that are in things that they collect uh, rosins, for example, pro, uh, pollens, for example. So it would not surprise me if there was an ample body of research to suggest that there are compounds in honey that are beneficial to bees beyond simply an energy source. And in that case, they might lose the benefit of that if they're fed exclusively on sugar syrup. But I would say that I've not seen those data overwhelming at the moment, though I wouldn't be surprised if we don't see some of that stuff pop up in the future. Nevertheless, feeding bee sugar syrup, uh, corn syrup, et cetera, as an energy source has just played out, you know, it's, it's demonstrated its value over and over and over again in the beekeeping industry. Sure. You know, we actually had a friend, um, his name is Vince, and he came into the bee lab just the other day and brought me some honey and he had his honey tested. Um, at the Texas A&M lab, which I did not realize that they actually don't do that testing anymore. But, you know, he was able to get this analysis of uh, what his, you know, what was in his honey. And I kind of wonder if he fed his bees and whether sugar syrup came up, you know, on the actual report. So I have to <laughs> ask him about that. Well, in many, in that particular case, that lab is looking for pollen grains that are present in the honey so that they can theorize, hey, you know, uh, you've got okay. a lot of this particular tree's pollen in there. So it's mm -hmm. probably predominantly, you know, citrus honey, gallberry honey, what have you. But there are labs that are sophisticated enough to be able to say, hey, this isn't derived from nectar. There's actually different things here. And they can say this is 50% sugar syrup. So um, it's it's been a problem. Adulteration in honey is a really big deal to beekeepers in the US and around the world for that matter. So that's that's why we have the recommendation. Do not feed bees any sort of sugar while they are producing marketable honey that you plan to extract. Awesome. All right. So the third question is not about feeding bees or sugar water, um, but this person was asking if we have any information about mixed race bees and is there such a thing in it? Is it best to avoid mixing the races? And I guess the first thing I kind of think of is like breeding dogs, you know, I mean, sometimes you'll get like a mutt and you don't really know what it's mixed with. They have like those DNA tests and stuff, but I've heard that dogs live longer when they're mixed. So what are your thoughts on that, Jamie? Yeah. So I will say a couple of things. Let me, let me give a little bit of biography or biology here so that our listeners can appreciate, you know, the questions being asked. So the, you the can give question, a biography. Yeah. Know. Well, it's actually the reason I struggled <laughs> because it's actually biogeography, but I didn't want to introduce that <laughs> term. So I said biography first and then, uh, which is basically the wrong, the wrong pronunciation of biogeography. All that aside, we don't have pure races of honeybees in the U.S. And so what, what that means is we know the Apis mellifera, this tree in, in Europe, the Middle East and Africa and, and Western Asia. So the stocks of bees that we have in the United States were brought over originally with some of the original European settlers and were continued to be introduced until the early 1900s. So those, a lot of the bees that we have here can, can trace back genetically, you know, to hundreds of years ago when European settlers came to the U.S., they, those, those races of bees that would have been brought over as pure races, Italian bees, German bees, things like that, are no longer pure races. So we don't have races of bees in the U.S. We have stocks of bees in the U.S. You can think a lot uh, about them a lot more like cattle. So there, there are no races that we're trying to preserve. When someone tells you they're selling you Italian bees, they're basically guessing that they're, well, they're not guessing, but, but that they are an Italian derived line. They are not the Italian race. 
they're a stock of Italian bees. And I know it's semantic, so maybe it's a little tricky kind of to understand and explain, but, but nevertheless, the real purpose of the stocks is that we want certain traits. You know, Italian-derived stocks tend to produce lots of bees and lots of honey. They tend to be docile. Um, the the Russian-derived stocks tend to be tolerant of varroa, things like that. And so the reason that's important is it's it has less to do with missing mixing races simply because we don't have races of bees in the U.S., but more to do with losing whatever traits came with the stock that we wanted in the first place. As an example, maybe I want docile, large colonies. So the Italian derived stock would be good. But if I bring in another stock that's slightly more defensive, uses more propolis and overwinters in much smaller clusters, maybe I don't like that. And so maybe I wouldn't want to mix those two stocks because I'm worried about losing whatever traits that I'm interested in. So it, it really all boils down to maintaining the stock that has the traits you want. Awesome. All right. Well, there we have it. Those are our question and answers. Everything was about wax today. Thank you so much. Don't forget to email us, follow our social media pages, and feel free to send us a direct message on, on any of the social media pages that we have. everyone. Thanks for listening today. We'd like to give an extra special thank you to our podcast coordinator, Megan Winfrey, and to our audio engineer, James Weaver. Without their hard work, two bees in a podcast would not be possible. For more information and additional resources for today's episode, don't forget to visit the UF IFAS Honeybee Research and Extension Laboratory's website, ufhoneybee.com. Do you have questions you won't answer it on air? If so, email them to honeybee at ifas.ufl.edu or message us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at UF Honeybee Lab. While there, don't forget to follow us. Thank you for listening to Two Bees in a Podcast.